Hello, this is John Goldthorpe, your host of the Nature Institute's podcast in Dialogue with Nature. At the Institute, we see science as a participatory process. We work to develop dynamic and flexible thinking that can perceive wholeness and do justice to the rich complexity of the world. We are intent on overcoming the limitations of a mechanistic view of life and, instead, learning from life itself to think in more living ways. We invite you to listen in and join us as we meet both natural phenomena and the nature of human inquiry. What you are about to hear is a talk Craig Holdridge gave for an international biodynamic agricultural conference in February of 2022 that focused on the topic of quality. He spoke to a local audience and via Zoom to people around the globe. And now, on to Craig's presentation. I want to address the issue of the quality of our experience in the world, our experience of ourselves and our experience of nature. What qualities do we bring to experience and what qualities can we perceive in the world? Let me begin by describing different aspects of my experience in a day-to-day way, and maybe it echoes with some of your experiences. I live just about a five-minute walk from the Nature Institute. I walk over a farm field from Hawthorne Valley Farm, and I do this every day, and I've been doing this every day for over 20 years. And I do it in different ways. I open the door, I go out, and as soon as I'm out, I walk sort of automatically this path to the Nature Institute, and I basically don't experience anything of what is around me. And not because I'm sleepwalking, but because I've got all these thoughts in my mind about what I have to do today. Who do I need to contact? What things do I have to write? All of the issues about the day-to-day work are filling me. I make it to the Nature Institute without any problems, but I haven't experienced anything of the world around me, although without that world, I wouldn't have been able to get from there to here. It's the basis of my being able to get from there to here. Not in my experience of the sensory world. I'm in my thoughts about what I need to do, which can be very important. Then there's other kinds of experiences I have on my walk. And those are when I notice things. I notice, for example, it's cold today. And I go around the back and I look at our thermometer and I see minus 10 degrees Celsius. That's cold. I go out onto the field and then I feel the cold breeze. I feel the crunching of the snow under my feet. I notice that there are deer just disappearing around the corner who'd been out on the field. I keep going. I notice more. I notice that the sun is just coming from behind a cloud. The light's brighter now, and I get to the Nature Institute. So noticing one thing after another. There, I'm a little bit in the world, but it's a little bit like a ping pong. I go out and come back in. I go out and come back in. So that is what I will call now noticing and registering that things happen, that there are things around me. Then there's a third way that every once in a while I'm engaged. And that is when I, for example, go out onto the field and I notice the glistening in the morning of the little ice crystals on the grasses. And I don't just register and move on. I actually kneel down and I look Carefully, I see how the glistening changes depending on how I move my head. I also notice that that wind coming from the back is really cold. I turn my face to the sun and I feel the warmth and I stay in it for a moment. 
feeling that warmth. Then I move on a little while, and I begin to notice that there are all these tracks of the deer. And then there are other tracks going through, and I begin to follow those. And I follow and see a little bit how that animal moved through the landscape last night. So in this way of being every once in a while on my walk, I'm actually participating for a moment, and no, for more than a moment, I'm taking time, as we say, I'm expanding into my experience of the sense world, and I'm dwelling. So I'm moving beyond registering, and I'm dwelling, and I'm participating. Then I'd like to mention one other way of engaging on my walk. I stop when I get to the beginning of the field, and it's frozen, snow underfoot, packed. And I think back a month or so ago, and it was really wet. In all fall, it was really wet. And one had to walk around little puddles, and one sunk in a little bit into this clay soil. And I realized, oh yeah, of course, this changes. How is it going to be in a few months? <clears throat> then the green of the grasses and of the forbs will start to appear. This will continually change throughout the year. And I walk it throughout the year. And I have something in my memory that I can then contemplate in relation to this place. This is not thinking about my office work. This is being in the place contemplative. That's another way of engaging. These are all everyday experiences that you could probably all have had in your own way. And what's interesting for me is to note that the first two are the more common ones in my day-to-day -day life. This being distracted, I'll say, or abstracted from experience where I'm in my thought, and then the registering and noticing. And these are qualities of a disconnect that is very strong in our times, where we're not with our experiences of the sensory world or in a contemplative mode, but we're in a more distanced relationship and we kind of bounce in and bounce out of experience. And that quality of the distancing is something I think that we all have to deal with and that's part of our culture and has been a strong part of our culture in the world culture over the last 400 years. And it's really interesting. I don't want to go into this at all long. It would be a whole talk. But if you just go back to the early 1600s and you read what these figures like Bacon and Galileo, for example, wrote, who were highly influential for the way people think about nature, then you find something very interesting. On the one hand, they say things like, let me just quote Bacon, I admit nothing but on the faith of the eyes. Only that which has been observed has any value. In Galileo, no greater truth may or should be sought than that it corresponds with all the particular appearances. This is what we often learn in school. Scientists are dealing with the sensory world. And then you have a really interesting contrast, especially in Galileo and, and others, not so much in Bacon. Galileo then says, philosophy is written in this grand book. Today we'd say science. Philosophy is written in this grand book, the universe, which stands open to our gaze. And what is the language? The language is mathematics. The language in which nature is written is mathematics. And without dealing with it mathematically, we get nowhere. That was his conviction. 
And yet, on the other hand, he said, we have to get to experience, to the concrete appearances. This interesting contrast, and then he takes a step further, and he says, tastes, odors, colors are no more than mere names. They are no more than mere names. They reside only in consciousness. If the living creature were gone, all of these qualities would be out of the world. So a really interesting juxtaposition of feelings about the nature of the world and ideas about the nature of the world. I need to get to the concrete appearances, but actually the concrete appearances are nothing. They're subjective fabrications. And of this way of looking at things has infiltrated our culture, and in science is still very strong, up to this day. Just one little quotation from six months ago in Science Magazine in a review of a book about blue. The whole book is about blue. And what does the author say about blue? Blue light is not actually blue. Blue doesn't really exist. So these interesting ways of relating, thinking about things, and then relating to the world in a way that really expresses disconnect. And you could say a distrust of experience, because experience is only me fabricating. Now, most of us don't have that as an explicit assumption about the world. Right? You could say, well, these are just scientists thinking they're weird things. But this way of disconnecting is very deeply ingrained. Let me just give you one example out of agriculture. A few years back, some scientists interviewed 113 different dairy farmers in the United States, conventional dairy farmers, about their animal welfare practices, asking them lots of questions, and then they summarize that the farmers said, we're treating our cows well. And why? Because they follow the recommendations of university and veterinary specialists. Right? So they're treating them better, and there are better veterinary care, improved nutrition with concentrates and the additives that they have in the feed, better ventilation in the barns, etc. So there are a number of things they name. The scientists who did the interviews, they make an interesting remark. They say that these farmers seldom mentioned that the cows prefer pasture. All of these cows had almost no access to pasture. It's interesting that the scientists notice, wait a minute, isn't pasture part of being a cow? A way a cow relates to the world is being on a pasture. I'll come back to this later. And they also, now this is me remarking, they didn't also say their cows are dehorned. Many of their cows have docked, cut off last part of the tail. Most of them are slaughtered after a few lactations because they get so unhealthy that it doesn't make sense to keep them alive. So all these things that are part of the reality are not in the minds of the people doing the work. They are doing things based on a certain authority of science and conventional that medicine. And this is the situation we're in today. We live in a world where we have to go to the experts to feel like we know what we're doing, but we don't really know what we're doing because we don't know, well, is that really true? Does it feel right? What is my relation to things as an experiencing person. So we have this area of scientific authority that we have a great distance to, and the methodology practicing is one of distancing, which has, in many ways, great value. When you quantify, you can agree with somebody. If you describe some of the qualities of your carrot, you might get into a conversation with somebody where you disagree with each other. But you can all agree this number of carrots weighs this much. The quantification brings agreement. 
Mathematics, we live in a sphere where things are really clear and we can agree with others. And so you can have a different kind of human interaction of agreement than in the more complex realm of qualities. But what happens is we, as human beings educated in this kind of a culture, cannot feel certain in relying on our experience. So we have this situation where over the past 400 years, we've really been cultivating certain capacities, human capacities. And we have not been cultivating other ones. And those are the ones that we speak about as the realm of qualities, the realm of quality. I think the importance of realizing we have aspects of our human being that we're not really at all cultivating. And we use our capacities of talking about qualities all the time, but we in no way are a culture of cultivating quality, qualities, qualitative experience. The qualitative experience is what I'd like to speak about now in different aspects. So to, in one sense, take it apart a little bit and hopefully bring those things together to look at it clearly. But we're talking now about experience. How can we enhance experience to connect with the world in a different way? You can imagine in whatever profession you are, that you take five minutes every day to go out somewhere, whatever environment you're in, with the intention, I want to invite the world in. I go out and invite the world in, and with the world I mean now everything that can come to us in sensory experience. So this is an intention I bring, not to be in me, not to be separate, but to go in. And I'm open, it's an opening gesture, it's an active gesture, and you see what comes towards me, what do I enter into? And you can notice that things appear that you've never noticed before, that you feel the cold air on your cheek moving in a different way than you otherwise would. You notice the way the light shines. You notice the feel and the texture of the soil in a different way because you're actually trying to experience it as a sensory quality. And that element of going out, open, experiencing. That's one aspect. And then another that's related to this is that you can then be drawn into something. Whereas I was speaking before, you begin to dwell. So in the workshop that we had the past couple days, people were experiencing a fruit in different qualities of its shape and its taste and its texture and comparing of two different fruits or two different vegetables. It was very interesting. All of us perceived things we'd never perceived before. And most of us have looked at apples, tasted apples many times. So if you intentionally go out and then focus and explore with your senses, the world appears fresh it loses some of the quality that it has. I'm speaking now out of experience. It loses some of the qualities it has as being mute and somewhat dead. And I can experience myself as being more alive in my intentionality and then something comes towards me in the world in the quality of the way I perceive the soil, the plant, the sun, the wind, at any given moment. This is being in experience in the moment. And when you're in that mode, 
what's interesting is now in reflection, in contemplating the nature of that experience, in contrast to other experiences, is the world is now a world of events. We speak often of facts, and we think of facts as being contained, self-contained. That's a fact. And when I say event, then that's something that happens. It's an occurrence that's there as long as I'm participating in it, and it has a freshness. It has a freshness and an aliveness that is different from saying, that's a fact. And what you can also notice in contemplating is, is when you are with the event, when you're in it, then you are not separate from the world. I'm not separate. The separate comes afterwards and say, oh yeah, I was doing that. But in that experience, in the being, in the sensory experience, then I am with world. The disconnect is gone. I think this is important. Those are moments where disconnect has been overcome. I'm going to call this now world or experience as events. One quality of the way we can experience the qualities of the world. Let me mention one aspect of this practice that's also, you could say, contemplative. Towards the end of the day, I do this not as regularly as I should probably. I look back on my day and say, where did I meet something in experience that really resonated? Where did I feel that I actually met something? Where I was participating in an event. And often it's kind of embarrassing to oneself to say, hardly any. And some days there was quite a bit to reflect back on where was I with the world, in the world, through the world, in my experience as a contemplative practice to enhance qualitative experience. Now, what I've described so far is this event nature, but that's not the whole world. If I am dealing with plants, for example, and I have a seed, and I plant the seed, and I know where I planted the seed. That's where noticing and registering is a really good capacity. And I come back, and I notice that the seed germinates, the plant is growing, the plant's developing. Then I'm every time in an event, but those events are connected with each other. And it's interesting, I can deal with that in different kinds of ways of noticing each time, oh yeah, the plant's growing, getting bigger, it's changing, now the leaves are like this, and then they're like that. Noticing is good, but if I just stay in the mode of noticing, or maybe I stay in the mode of, wow, event, this is new today, which is really good, wonder arises. But I'm not really yet with the plant as a growing, developing being. I'm not with the plant. How do I get with the plant? Well, working with it as a gardener, farmer, of course, working with it, observing it, how it is growing, being with it. But what's interesting here to notice is that to be with the living qualities of the plant, I have to do something. And we do this sort of unconsciously, but we can do it more consciously. We live in a dreamy way in the qualities of things, in the connecting of things, in the aliveness, and it's about waking that up a little bit. So with the plant, observing how it was three days ago, what was its form like, shape, consistency, color, and now how is it today? And I, in my imagination, try to connect these two. I think the plant grew like this. So I'm participating 
through my own inner willed flow of thought, of thinking, willed flow of thinking, a thinking that's pictorial, concrete, not a thinking about, but thinking with it, I'm with the process of transformation. I'm not outside it, I'm with it. So we try to inwardly be with that which is in experience. We notice it, we observe it carefully, and we follow transformations and growth. And that is everywhere in the living world. It's around us everywhere, these transformations. And the question is, how do we participate in them or not? If you have, on the one hand, this following, for example, the development of a plant through different, we say, stages. Stages are an artifact of our way of looking at the things. It's a unified, unfolding, developing process that we can get a sense of. We can participate in. Then the plant becomes qualitative for us as a living creature. There's another side. Without the soil, without the moisture, without the warmth, without the air, without the light, none of that germination would have happened. So I have to also to do justice to the plant, bring together in my imagination the, the sense of the whole environment of the plant is allowing the plant to be plant. The environment is not outside the plant when we think of it in a living way. It's what the plant participates with yeah, it's what the plant participates with to become itself over time. I wrote this down because these things are difficult to formulate for me. So I can say on the one hand, a plant develops out of a seed. And I can also say the world develops through the seed into the plant. And world, I mean what we normally call environment, which is many layered and there's much, of course, that we don't understand there. But to have that sense, the plant is connected. It's not a disconnected creature. Can I move a little bit into its connections? The plant forming potential lies in the seed and the environment. They belong together. They are not separate. What appears as plant is the result of plant world activity. It's a coming to appearance of potentials in the environment and in the seed that belong together. Right? Belong together. The plant is not in a world of separation. And we can begin to participate in that. World as event World in transformation, growth, development, process. Now a third aspect of, I'm going to call it, connecting qualitative experience. And that is the world as gesture. Here I'd like to take a, an example from a completely different area that we're all completely familiar with. Every day we swim in this, qualitatively, impressively, I don't notice it very much. Listen to these two sentences, please. She listened to a tall tale and smiled. She listened to a tall tale and smiled. She listened to a tall tree swaying in the wind and smiled. She listened to a tall tree swaying in the wind and smiled. Tall tail and a tall tree. We understand that easily, but the tall is quite different in both cases. 
but we understand it right away out of the movement and what we say here at the Nature Institute, a word we use a lot, context, out of its relations in the sentence, in the thought, in the gestures the person's making. So she listened to a tall tale and smiled. Listening to a tall tale and smiling, the smile is quite different, I think, than when you smile at the tall tree swaying in the wind. Both a smile, but of a different quality. And the words have, you could say, a potential that manifests in relationships and we access that all the time in language. And we're using it and understanding it. And this is a highly qualitative relation to the world that we have in everyday speech. Now, the question is, could there be something like this in our relation to nature? In relation to the natural world? A gestural relation. One often speaks of reading in the book of nature. I'm not so sure how much I like that metaphor. We could say, is there something where what a part is, a word in a sentence, what a part is of something in the world, can we see how it's related to a whole, how it's integrated into a whole, and changes what it is when some other aspects change? So, the world gestural. I want to give you one example that, again, does not come out of agriculture. I apologize, but I want to speak out of experience. And some of you know this who are in this room, maybe some of the others as well, that I've concerned myself to a fairly high degree for a time of my life with giraffes. Giraffes as these quite remarkable creatures. And when I was doing research on the giraffe, I came across an article by a very well-known scientist, Stephen Jay Gould, who claimed in his article on the giraffe that the giraffe's front legs weren't really longer than their back legs. They just looked like it. They only appeared so. And I immediately thought, that's wrong. He's wrong. And of course, he's a big scientist, and I didn't say this to his face. I just thought, he's wrong. But I said, I need to really check and see if my feeling is right. So I go to the Natural History Museum in New York City. I go into where they have all the bones of giraffes, and I measure the front legs, the front limbs, the back limbs, add the length of the bones together. And I do this with a number of different legs from different giraffes. And I come to the result, the front legs are definitely longer than the rear legs. And then I find that other people have actually done those measurements before in older literature, and I feel confirmed. I know something. I've got the facts. I've got the data. And that felt good. But the interesting feeling also was there. So what? Does that matter? Does that matter? to the giraffe, it's as though I had a definition, as though I had a definition of a word and said, that's what it is, but then, so what? So is there something to this fact that the front legs are longer than the rear legs? And so in studying then the animal, now moving into it qualitatively, experientially, then you can begin to see, for example, when you compare it with other four-legged hooved mammals, that all the other ones have longer back legs than front legs. So there is something special about the giraffe. It has this anatomical detail. You say, oh, big deal. But maybe it is a big deal. It shows something, perhaps. And so then you compare with others, and then I look at the giraffe itself in its overall form, and I see that not only does it have very long legs, the front legs are longer than the rear legs, but it also has a very short body. 
a very short body. And its body is not so horizontal. Think of a cow. When you see a cow in a pasture, it's this lovely horizontal spine. And when you see a giraffe's spine, it's at an angle. It goes out of the horizontal. This is the front legs and the spine is going up. And then, of course, it has this extremely long neck that happens to be in the front of the animal. So in the front of the animal. So it's going lengthening, uprighting in the spine a bit, a very upright, long neck with a head that has a special joint, untypical again, that it can expand its neck up like this. Most other animals can only go that far. They can go this far. And then it can stick out its 40 centimeter long tongue. So up, 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 up. The giraffe started to become gestural. By my moving through the parts and moving through them in my, as clear as possible, thinking imagination. It's really interesting you can call it thinking. You can call it imagination. I can call it a will, a thinking that has feeling and will in it at the same time. It's interesting to try to describe this way of inwardly, you could say, recreating what you're finding outwardly as a form, as a shape. And so you're entering into that, and you enter it into it in different places, and you begin to see something you can call a gesture. That if you put a name to it, which I did in this one little essay that I wrote about it, I said there's a tendency towards soaring upward. And then it has these huge eyes that it can see with when it's way up there. I'm not going to go further into the giraffe now. Do you get a sense of, in this sense, we're moving from beyond event, beyond just transformation, to how something is an integral whole that we can begin to access. Ah, access, a horrible word. We can begin to participate in and it begins to speak qualitatively like language does for us all the time. And the world becomes qualitatively incredibly rich when you get a little inkling of this here and there. That's where then you can also say, and I want to just mention this, where the quantitative approach you can find a lot of interesting things quantitatively. And it's not about saying, boo, those are bad. But they can be embedded and integrated into one's understanding if you sort of take them out of their isolation and you don't think they're the whole thing. This is not about creating a dichotomy. It's about really seeing what can a qualitative way of experience bring to appearance in the world that if I'm just moving in the mode of distancing, I'm not going to get there. Event, process transformation, gesture. Now there's something implicit in what I've been speaking about the whole time that now I need to make explicit as another aspect. And here, just a brief invitation to think about cows. And because I'm lucky here being next to Hawthorne Valley Farm, which is a dairy farm, and those people in the room all know this, these, this lovely cow herd that's in the fields around here, and I get to see them a lot. I go out with the apprentices, and we observe the cows. And you could observe a dairy herd grazing on a pasture. And now you bring, again, this intentionality of what am I experiencing there? Can I really go out to it? And the first thing is just to kind of imagine these creatures are in their food. They're surrounded by their potential food. It's not there until they turn their heads down and their snout to the grass their tongue whips out, they move their head, and they start biting off. And when you measure that, 
time. It's about one bite a second. Not exactly. And I've been thinking recently, I said, is that where the second came from? (laughs) I won't go into that. But it's such a concrete second. Very different from other seconds. It's a rhythmical movement of an engaged creature breathing strongly out and in, the tongue out, the moist snout, and taking in lots of grass, quantitative. You read in veterinary books, 167 pounds per day of fresh pasture. Now, I haven't confirmed that, but it's one of these impressive numbers where you think, hmm, that's a lot. When you're thinking they're doing this, you know, six, seven, eight hours a day, 27,000 bites, someone wrote, in grazing. And then you have that all disappearing into the rumen. The rumen, this incredible inner space that is populated with what the cow has taken in from world, microbial world, integrated that into its being and made it its own organ of digestion, of cellulose. So you have this whole inner activity. Before it gets there, the cow is salivating. In immense amounts of saliva being formed out of the blood, mixing with the grass that goes into the rumen, then comes back out again and another 20,000 a day. This activity, the, the grinding, back out. And the cow, in doing this, grass disappears. Of course. You are not what you eat. You destroy what you eat, and you make cow bones and cow meat, uh, flesh, and blood and all of this. The cow is creating itself continually through the grass, making itself and making all sorts of different substances. Think of milk. A glass of grass and a glass of milk. That's cow in between. Cow activity. Think also what the cow gives off to the world besides the milk, which then goes to its offspring and goes to us. But think of the feces and the urine, manure, large amounts of fluidity going out the back end, grass coming in the front end, and giving off warmth, giving off moist air, more carbon dioxide rich air, burping methane into the air. It's interacting with the world, giving off, taking in, transforming. A cow is activity. A cow is agency. A cow is a doing. A cow is a being at work. So is a plant in a very different way. So is a giraffe. So is a mouse. So are the microbes in the soil. So are the microbes in the rumen. Everywhere we have what I want to call nature naturing, nature doing, nature living, and beings doing, and beings as beings are doings. Again, we can say, well, those are other beings, and those are human beings, and those are these kind of beings. But do we picture them as things or as doings that are gestural, active, transforming, and continually creating new events in the world that we could participate in. This aspect of nature as doings, as activity, as agency, that's another layer of qualitative understanding, of qualitative engagement, of qualitative insight that brings you into a different relation to the world. When I'm in this mode, and I'm not in this mode, right? 
like can be as distanced as anybody else on the planet, a sense of separation, a sense of how do I get there? And then I move into these different kinds of activities, these different experiences, and I come out and I realize actually the world is a connected whole, and I'm part of that. It's just that I don't always realize it. I'm in it in a dreamy way, in an intellectual way, I separate myself from that, and now I can begin to reintegrate my consciousness into that dynamic weaving that we call the world. And that's a world of qualities, a qualitative world. I'm moving towards the end. This question of the relation of humanity to the world. I want to put it this way. We deal a lot with our fellow creatures all the time in our society, in our technologies, in farming, in thinking about, in education. We're always dealing with the world. And we can choose to deal with the world, interact with the world, engage with the world in different ways. When we think of what I'll call encapsulated thinking, one example, just one example, back to the cow in a different way, a neuroscientist wrote some years back about the problem of factory farming. And it's a kind of a moral issue that we're not dealing with the suffering of animals. It was interesting, the comment he made, he said, well, you know, if we're not going to deal with that problem in the way of changing factory farmers, and then comes to say, we can't change it. We can't change this. This is something that I've always rebelled against since I was a little boy, when people told me that can't be changed. I always said, why not? We're human beings. We can change the way we interact with the world. And he said, well, we're not going to change it. We need more factory farms to feed more people. But we could do something. We know we can genetically engineer mice so that they don't feel certain types of pain. We could genetically modify cows so that we can keep them in these conditions of factory farms where they get unhealthy, but they won't notice it. This was a serious article in the journal called Neuroethics. I was flabbergasted in the sense of how disconnected can we be? But we're disconnected. This is everywhere. It's rampant. That's just an extreme example that really kind of gets you going. Imagine now a lot of humanity, not in maybe that extreme form, but that we can go through the world and not really pay attention in the way I've been talking about today. I can certainly say I don't a lot of the time. And I think a lot of people I know don't either. Then we're doing these kinds of things that I just mentioned in terms of powerful manipulation out of a standpoint of distance from the things. The cows become production units and you can basically do anything with them. If we're in that mode, and we are a dominant species on the earth, whether we like it or not, we are. Now, try to imagine, as a thought experiment, try to imagine you're part of this world of nature naturing. How do you perceive being not perceived? How do you experience in your own way, I'm not trying to make nature anthropomorphic here, it's just the thought experiment. How does the world feel from the other side that's being ignored, that's being trampled upon? Partially, not always. I have this question because we all know what it means as human beings to not be seen, to be ignored. What's a gesture? You can rebel and you can withdraw. Those are kind of tendencies that you can have. I'm going to withdraw even more. Or 
rebel. Now, I have this just as a question for this whole natural world of nature naturing, the being at work in nature, when this is all not being integrated into the consciousness of the dominant creatures on earth from one point of view. You can have other points of view. So, withdrawal, potentially. Are we seeing that? Well, we certainly see that in the health of, for example, factory farm animals. We see it in loss of biodiversity. We see it in many ways. We register it. But can we begin to see that that might have to do with the vitality of nature? Naturing could be different if human beings participated in it. Question. I'm leaving with questions. I would say, for me, a task. If I can go this pathway that I've tried to express events, of transformation, of gesture, of agency, nature naturing, does that have a significance for the larger world and not only for my own satisfaction? I have the sense that this potency of nature naturing is waiting to invite human beings in. That's my sense. It's just everywhere there's this potency out there, it's just waiting for us to participate in. When that happens, I mean, I think it does happen. If that were a, a stronger tendency of humanity to be in the world in this way, I think whole new relations to the planet could arise that we can't even imagine. But it depends on cultivating qualitative experience. The quality of our experience. That's it. Thank you. We hope that you've enjoyed this presentation. We'd love to hear what you think. You can write to us at info at natureinstitute.org with your comments and suggestions. You can become a subscriber and or download a PDF version of all the back issues of In Context, our twice-yearly publication, and many other books, essays, and podcasts on our webpage, natureinstitute.org. Thanks for listening.